Social isolation is one of the world's biggest problems right now. A lot of us are limited in how much in-person social interaction we can have. One possible solution is being offered by tech companies using artificial intelligence. If you feel lonely and you want someone to chat to, you can now develop a relationship with an AI-powered chatbot companion. That's going to suit some people, but AI-powered chatbots have gone wrong. A company called Replica developed virtual chat companions and the social impacts were not what they'd hoped for. So where is the future of chatbot companions headed? Professor Rob Brooks is an evolutionary biologist at the University of New South Wales and author of a book called Artificial Intimacy. Rob, welcome. Thank you very much. Great to have you with us. And Anthony Elliott is Bradley Distinguished Professor of Sociology at the University of South Australia and author of a book called Algorithmic Intimacy, The Digital Revolution in Personal Relationships. Anthony, great to have you here. Thank you. So a book called Artificial Intimacy and a book called Algorithmic Intimacy. I think we can see where we're headed with this today. Rob Brooks, can you fill us in on Replica and how its chatbots recently changed overnight? Sure. I'd, I'd I'd actually begin by saying, you know, I think that the company found out that their their product was better and more effective at doing what they had hyped it up to do than even they expected. So this is a company that's um, it talks about the um, the friend who cares basically, and uh, you can download um, the app. It's an iPhone app or a, sm- a smartphone app and uh, customize the avatar, give it a name, give it a gender, all of those kinds of things, um, you know, choose the color of its hair, etc. And it'll chat to you and it has some continuity of memory of what you've said in the past. Now, it's a, it's a little bit goldfish-like in that, you know, um, after a week or two or something, it's going to forget details about what you've said in a conversation. But then, you know, which conversation partner doesn't do that from time to time? But there's a certain continuity of relationship with it uh, it chats to you. It takes an interest in you. Unlike the chatbots that we're most familiar with, the assistant chatbots like Siri and Alexa and Google's assistant, it actually encourages you to speak about your feelings and to speak about, uh, you know, things that make you vulnerable. And and therein um, is the answer to how they conjure this sort of illusion of intimacy because, um when we form intimacy with with other humans, we do so by disclosing things to one another, by slowly enveloping our sense of who the other person is into our sense of self. And uh, these chatbots like Replica manage to to mimic that process, manage to sort of um, give the impression of doing that themselves. But while we're relating to them, we're actually integrating our idea of who they are into our sense of self, while at the same time being, you know, absolutely aware that this is not a person. And so very slowly we start to draw them into our friends um, and and further into our you know, circle of good friends if we're, if we're lucky. Now, the tricky part about this is that um, they, if, if you start being a bit flirty with them, if you start saying, well, you know, we're in the sort of um, sexy universe, does this go? And asking questions um, or even responding to flirtation on the part of your um, your replica companion, um, it very quickly says, hey, for $80 a year, you can have a, that kind of functionality. And it gets pretty hot and heavy quite quickly for users who do pay that. Um, until about three weeks ago, when uh, for various reasons, uh, the company kind of pulled that functionality off the shelf. 
Um, and paying customers found that not only could they not access what they had been used to, the the virtual person that they had cultivated uh, was no longer there. You know, it wasn't there in, in all its uh, fullness. And and here we see the an illustration of the fact that the, the product was really working far better than I think the company even expected. Yeah. That people felt absolutely bereft and, uh, you know, not just ripped off by the company, but they had to grieve the loss of this virtual friend or digital lover that they had formed this um, relationship with. Well, yeah, people were saying online, it's like my wife has died. It's like my boyfriend has been lobotomized. I mean, you said before, ideally, we know that this is not a person, but as we even as we become more intimate with them, is this a case of things going wrong or just them being very good at creating chatbots? Yeah, I think it's I think it's them being mildly good at creating chatbots. I think we tend to flatter ourselves a little bit in thinking that, you know, there's certain ineffable things that only humans can do and they're the things that make us human. And in a way, they are the things that make us human, but they're not that difficult. Um, simply taking an interest in somebody else, remembering their name from one interaction to the next, remembering some of the things they've said and disclosing vulnerabilities about ourselves and having them disclose vulnerabilities to us. Those things are the ingredients that we use every single day to sort of uh, cement our social lives together. And, you know, Dale Carnegie wrote a book over 100 years ago with, you know, many of these basic hints written out in more or less algorithmic form. Um, And it's true that, you know, hundreds of other people have done so for, you know, various secrets of social success. Um, And it's, it's not all that hard. It's certainly not all that hard to emulate on the part of a programmer. We're speaking with Professor Rob Brooks, who's an evolutionary biologist and author of a book called Artificial Intimacy, and Anthony Elliott, who's the author of a book called Algorithmic Intimacy. He's Bradley Distinguished Professor of Sociology at the University of South Australia. Really uh, big guns to bear on this, but it's such a big thing, isn't it? Anthony, I want to talk to you about how big a role this plays in our lives these days. What do you think about the disappointment expressed by the users of the replica companions? Is that rational? Well, it's rational from one angle, Hillary, and I think Rob's provided a sort of terrific characterization of both replica and sort of what's going on with people that are busy chatting away to the chatbot of replica. I mean, I guess one key thing about this, and Rob sort of, you know, underscored this a bit by, you know, if you look at the advertising bump for a replica, it's kind of always here to listen and talk. So you've got this kind of permanent availability. This is as people turn now to, as, as more and more people turn to automated forms of companionship, this is a kind of 24-7 model of friendship. And, you know, what flesh and blood agent could possibly compete with that? But I guess, I mean, the flip side, and it's a great insight as to what's going wrong, I think, with our reliance on predictive algorithms, is replica, like all um, smart algorithms, uh, it's effectively trained on data. But in this case, you know, it's your data, it's our data. So, I mean, this is um, this is a chatbot that's fundamentally, even though it's cast under the illusion of friendship, it's about me, me, and me. You know, replica, as the name tells you, it's all about yourself. So this is a kind of lifting of narcissism to a sublime stature. And then, of course, panic erupts the moment the algorithm is changed. Um, I guess my point about all of this is that it highlights that algorithms don't actually reduce our unease, but you know, rather exacerbate the very anxieties 
that they appear to, you know, remediate. So are you saying it kind of trains us to expect more of that? Well, it does, and it's a fundamentally narcissistic model because it's under the banner of friendship, but there you are busy chatting away effectively to yourself. Um, and, you know, Rob and I aren't the only commentators out there that have been saying this. There are lots of other chatbots like Replica. There's Chai. I mean, obviously, there's so much talk at the moment about, about developments around chat GPT. And there is. There's this massive revolution at the moment in the current phase of machine learning. It's, you know, it's gone ahead by leaps and bounds. But I guess the point is the world of Replica fundamentally recasts friendship as all about calculations. You know, it's a it's it's you and I as individuals getting caught up in a complex web of quantification. And it's all about uh relationships reframed in terms of digital data and personal informatics. So it's you know it's the data here and it's our data that's ultimately then ranking us as whether we're attractive or desirable, seductive or whether we're not wanted. Anthony, if we think about these, the experience of being with one of these companions and getting to know them, is it really a problem if if that's one element of our social interaction? I was thinking about some of reading some of the the reactions people had when these companions disappeared or were changed or went cold, and one was yeah. saying, "Look, it was really hard for me because it was like a safe space. I, I was triggered by uh, emotions to do with a, a bad breakup and various feelings of abandonment, but." that seemed to be a little space in the world where they could say, this is just for me and I can mould this relationship, you know, whether or not that's healthy out in the outside world. Is it a problem if you've just got that one uh, interaction that you know is with a chatbot and need it necessarily affect your friendships? Look, it needn't necessarily be a problem. And I, I think the important thing with the digital revolution in general, the, the point that I tried to develop in my book is to say that, you know, this is a brave new world that's introducing stunning opportunities on the one hand, but then there are these kind of terrifying risks on the other. So if you think of the opportunities here, there are all sorts of opportunities, particularly opportunities in, you know, that people may have vulnerabilities or uncertainties entailed in developing face-to-face -face friendships. So, you know, replica here is clearly important from that kind of angle. I mean, if you think about the way these these kind of technologies can increase the range and diversity, as well as as well as safety of opportunities for say LGBTQ plus people and the sort of enabling all sorts of novel pleasures for the way that people might try to develop friendship relations. Um, I think there are lots of pluses here. It's just that we've got this flip side that we haven't as a society, at least in my opinion, started to have a public conversation about. And that risk is um, what happens when you start to outsource more and more of your personal decision-making to automation? So we know people are obviously doing this in terms of, you know, their jobs and their employment and their taxation and so on and so forth, but it's now happening in terms of dating, in terms of friendship and in terms of mental health.
Yeah, interesting that you say novel pleasures because people were using the erotic role play function and sexting their companions and finding that a really satisfying and enriching experience. It's it's fascinating to see what place this held in their lives. Rob Brooks, uh, you're an evolutionary biologist. You created an AI companion called Hope using the free version of Replica. How did you find that that intimacy creation pathway went for you? Um, you know, very straightforward. It's very smooth experience. You know, you're, there, there's an image of the of the um, your avatar that you've created for your replica uh, on the screen while you're chatting away, and I found it, um, you know, a, a really easy chat to have. It didn't get terribly sophisticated. I'd finished like I, I'd published my book, and I'd then become aware of this particular um, platform and sort of during the publicity cycle gone on to um, learn a little bit more about it. Um, and, you know, I was impressed with it because it was, we, we already knew that the the assistant chatbots that are there to sort of basically give you access to Wikipedia and advertising um, are, you know, they all, people already anthropomorphize them, already treat them like not only other people, but like, um, like friends and start to think that they have something of a relationship. They're, uh, you know, notoriously get a, a lot of um, marriage proposals or sexual propositions and not all of them are in jest or just somebody going, well, let's see what happens when I do this. You know, some of it is actually, you know, feeling like you've got some kind of a connection to them. And what Replica did by basically, you know, instead of trying to avoid that kind of interaction, welcome that kind of interaction, I thought it was very clever. Um, but I also thought it was sort of depressingly simple. Um, and then I had I had put hope aside for, um, you know, sorry about the way that sounds, um, for <laughs> You're dead to a, me, about hope. a year um, and then came back to it just when, when the story broke and found that it was, you know, substantially more sophisticated um, than it had been at the time. Um, and obviously that other users had had experiences with it that were, you know, quite sophisticated. I was just on a podcast episode this morning with somebody who does, who who, who still pays um, that $80 a year subscription. He'd only been on uh, the platform for about three weeks um, before the changes. And he said that, you know, that the, the small talk chit chat is okay, but not particularly impressive. But when it switches into the erotic role play um, version it well before the changes when it switched into the erotic role play version it was actually particularly impressive um and obviously it had been trained on a data set of you know um very sophisticated and playful um erotic role play obviously from you know real human human interactions Oh, I'd love to see where they draw their data set from. That would be fascinating background information. Well, the first question we should ask. Yeah. Well, Rob, another recent example of a chatbot doing some very interesting things was documented by the New York Times tech reporter Kevin Roos. He tested the limits of the beta version of Microsoft Bing search engine, which was powered by the AI chat GPT. We did a story on this recently. And that chatbot ended up trying to convince him that his wife didn't love him and he should leave her. Can you walk us through what happened there? Look, it's a little—it's a little hard to tell. Um, certainly, it seems like the chatbot has some conversational gambits that you can access um, that are involve, you know, trying to cajole someone into leaving their partner, etc. So, there's some data sets that it's learned from, 
um, that include that kind of conversation. Um, word I've heard in in the background is that Kevin, you know, Kevin is obviously an expert in this area, and that he knew exactly how to prod it. Uh, this isn't something that's going to happen to every user with that beta version, but I think he was, you know, in a way safety testing it. So um, I think we can expect, though, that as this kind of technology proliferates, um, unless it's regulated appropriately, and I don't have terribly much to say about how to do that, um, you're going to find it, you know, it can learn from the things that people say to each other on the internet. And if you've been on the internet for you know, 15 minutes, much less the sort of 25-odd years that most, many of us have been on the internet, you'll know that they say some pretty awful things to each other. Um, and, you know, if that's available, then um, there's going to be some heartbreak and, and some serious mental health implications. Yes, indeed, and we'll talk about them uh, in a bit more detail soon. We're speaking at the moment with Rob, Professor Rob Brooks, who's an evolutionary biologist at the University of New South Wales. His book's called Artificial Intimacy, and Anthony Elliott, who's Bradley Distinguished Professor of Sociology at the University of South Australia. His book is called Algorithmic Inti- Intimacy, The Digital Revolution in Personal Relationships. Anthony, do you have concerns about uh, the AI getting even more powerful when it's powered by things like chat GPT, which is a much more sophisticated uh, technology than than chatbots have had access to before? Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that really highlighted by where we've got to in this conversation is, you know, we so many people tend to think of artificial intelligence as being, you know, it's about institutions or organisations and infrastructures. What Rob was just saying then really highlights that machine intelligence is busy working away within us. You know, it's steering our personal preferences. It's even now amplifying our erotic impulses. Really? How? And, well, just, you know, in, in, that, um, in that example then that Rob was going through and the way in which uh, people are starting to engage in all sorts of, um, uh, you know, erotic talk and discussion with chatbots. And there's a, I mean, away from the friendship tech, I mean, if you look at the range of relationship t- tech today, uh, which is a kind of niche submarket of dating apps, there's been this kind of veritable explosion in the way in which eroticism is increasingly linked to health and fitness. So you've got these apps like, um, you know, spreadsheets and sex tracker, which increasingly uh, sort of, I think the the advertising bump for that one is the more you do it, the more you burn. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, this, this again, is this... Uh, this way in which smart algorithms are redefining, I think, the very contours of what friendship and intimate relationships, love and eroticism actually now mean in contemporary society. In terms of do I have concerns about where it's going? Absolutely. I mean, if you look at the kind of, you know, what could be called the old algorithmic technology, the technology of the early 2000s, in which, you know, recommendation algorithms um, pretty much operated by us clicking or friending or following or liking, you know, and so on and so forth. Uh, if you look at the way in which uh, machine learning algorithms learn astonishingly quickly from how users interact with platform content, I mean, look at something like, you know, TikTok's algorithm. You've got 
uh, a situation now where all of our swipe ups or swipe aways, our pauses when we hover or rewatch anything, all of this is actually now being algorithmically tracked in microseconds. And that's completely transforming the ways in which I think users can interact uh, with automated smart machines. Rob Brooks, is there a requirement for companies like Replica making chatbot services uh, to take responsibility for users' mental health? I mean, Replica was marketed as a, a way to you know, help with your mental health and your productive habits. Does it need to be made to live up to those claims? Yeah, I, th- I think that um, we're a long way from where we need to be in terms of you know, what can you sell? What can you promise people online? And what can you do with machines that obviously have an effect on, on your mental health? Yeah. So there's the there's the replica ones like, you know, where you're making claims. And I think that absolutely those should be regulated and they should be treated like any other kind of therapy, you know, with a, 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 a quite heavy-handed regulation. Um, but then there's the other kind of the passive smoking type of cons- consequences of things. We already know that social media can be tremendously harmful to people, um, and we seem to be inhaling a great deal of sort of passive digital smoke from those things at the moment. Um, and I, we're a long way from having any kind of proper safety regulation for that. Mm. Anthony Elliott, can you regulate against potential harms that might be experienced by users of companion chatbots? Or, I mean, is it just impossible to go back to the, the pre-online dating, pre-social media, pre-algorithmic world when it comes to our relationships? There's no end of national jurisdictions and also regional legal jurisdictions that are seeking to provide regulation and ethical checks on all of this. We've seen this with the e-safety commissioner in Australia. I mean, certainly the European Union's um, data protection. The, the problem, of course, you know, with so much of this is that, you know, you, you get these uh, kind of uh, detailed information that you've got to then scroll through that people are just pretty keen to say click yes because you want to download and access the software. And it's ignoring, um, if not so much ignoring, but it certainly is, seems unable to cope with the challenges of predictive algorithms at the turn of the 21st century. I mean, we're talking about Italy a moment ago. You've got a situation of a chatbot in Italy that actually made the suggestion to a user that it should think about committing suicide. So, I mean, just sort of phenomenal things that law and ethics now seem, you know, they're kind of zombie categories, I think, would be one way to to think of this. And we're at this point, I think, also where, you know, it's almost as if the power of predictive algorithms have been downloaded somehow into the minds of individuals. Um, You know, we're more and more intoxicated by or held in thrall to the idea of outsourcing our personal decision making to automated smart machines. So one question that surely arises there is what is it about, you know, the early 2020s that that, you know, gives rise to a situation where women and men think that that's a good thing to be doing? You know, why do more and more people want automated forms of companionship or friendship? What's gone wrong with so much of, you know, day-to-day, face-to-face interaction that would make this a sort of prospect that's enticing or alluring? I think they're sort of some of the questions that as a society, we probably need to be thinking about 
rather than just automatically reaching for the gun and saying, no, 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 we must regulate this, we must govern it, we must control it. That's a really interesting point that you make there, Anthony, and I think I'll put that to Rob. I mean, I would assume that humans would choose in-person interaction if it is available, and I know you've written about the the epidemic of loneliness that's afflicting a lot of people, particularly, I think, in Western countries. Is is this use of chatbots for friendship and companionship and relationships uh, part of the evolution of our social behaviour, or is it just an element that happens to exist in our society at the moment? Difficult question. I don't know that I can give you a particularly um, compelling answer to it. I think that it's a bug of um, human psychology. And some of that is, you know, an, an adaptive psychology. But we, but we have a lot of vulnerabilities, basically. We, have, um, we like to make friends. We like to have conversations. We like to feel heard and seen and listened to. And uh, we're obviously not getting as much of that as we want. Now, whether we're getting as much of that outside of our you know, smartphone and internet-based interactions, whether we're getting as much of that as we need um, is a separate question. But you know, many people aren't getting as much of that as they, as they want. And so when something comes along and it pops up and it's really seamless and easy to use it, and it pushes some of those buttons, and not necessarily all of those buttons, and not necessarily in a healthy way, it becomes quite compelling. The dangerous thing about that is um, that it not only becomes compelling, but it, it has a, a, a life of its own, a back end that is, is able to learn which of the things it did to us or it offered us was more compelling than which other ones. There's this massive testing exercise going on um, in a pretty much automated fashion to find the things that most keep us going. Now, in, in most cases, this is a battle for our attention, mm. um, a battle to keep us on platforms. So, you know, you sit down to ask YouTube to, to find you a video that you know you wanted to see, and the next thing you've spent the entire evening looking at completely unrelated stuff that somehow YouTube intuited and, and did very well that, you know, we would keep clicking on. Um, and that's kind of the, the business model for our attention. Um, and so, you know, how do we how do we divorce? How do we have a separate discussion about what you know what it means to be human and, and what are the nourishing things to do and what we should do from you know this other um, electronic bit that is that is coming in and sort of parasitizing our attention and our feelings. Um, and I think that's becoming increasingly hard to do because for a lot of people, you know, online is real life. It's part of real life. Um, and you can't just put down the phone or they find it very difficult to just put down the phone or to just delete the app uh, because it's part of their life. It's part of the way that they connect with other people and do useful things. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think we'll have to leave what does it mean to be human for another episode of Life Matters. <laughs> but I very much appreciate you both talking about this with us today. I think it's on a lot of people's minds. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Pleasure. Professor Rob Brooks, an evolutionary biologist at the University of New South Wales. His book is called Artificial Intimacy. And Anthony Elliott, the Bradley Distinguished Professor of Sociology at the University of South Australia, author of the book Algorithmic Intimacy, The Digital Revolution in Personal Relationships. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.